David was the greatest and the most famous of all of the kings of Israel. And he was king for 40 years from 1010 to 970 BC. He was a great man. He was probably best known, I guess, as the teenage boy who slew the nine-foot monster that was Goliath, the, the uh, strongest of the Philistine soldiers. David wrote most of the Psalms in the Bible, a whole section of the Bible, songs that really, as you read through them, show his deep, deep love for God. This was a man who was passionate about God. In fact, in Acts 13, 22, God describes David as a man after his own heart, who would do everything God wanted him to do. In other words, David was passionately devoted to God and to God's glory and to living for God. And as you read through the Bible, one thing shines through as you read David's life story, as you read the Psalms, as you read the other references to David and so on, is that David was a great man of God. And, and David was the human ancestor of Jesus. Jesus physically descended from David. Jesus, of course, was the, the rightful king of Israel. Yet even great King David, the man after God's own heart, even great King David got it wrong. On one occasion, David found himself at home with time on his hands. He should have been away with his armies, leading his armies, doing and performing the role of king and commander-in-chief of the military. He should have been away uh, leading his armies against the enemy of, of Israel, who were in a war at the time. But instead of taking his role as king seriously, he opted out of his responsibilities and he stayed at home. And he stayed at home while somebody else led the army on his behalf. And that was David's first mistake on that instance. He did what all of us as men, if we're honest, we're prone to do, right? Since Adam, we're all prone to do this. We fail to take our responsibilities as men seriously. We fail to take our responsibilities as husbands, as fathers, and as leaders in our homes or in our church seriously. We, we check out. We fail to step up to the responsibilities that God has given us. And David did the same. He, he didn't man up, he didn't stand up and, and perform the role that he should have been as king. And so he found himself at home on a hot night with nothing to do, and so he went out for a walk on the roof, that terrace, that roof terrace of his palace there in Jerusalem. And as he strolled on his roof, he saw a woman, and the woman was a lady called Bathsheba. And there she was on another roof having a bath. And David saw her, and there wasn't anything sinful in, in seeing her, nothing sinful in finding her attractive. That was a natural thing to do. But that was when David made his second mistake. Instead of turning around in that instant and walking away, David carried on looking and watching. And he moved from seeing to watching and to wanting. And then he made his third mistake. As his mind was then filled with lust and desire to have what he was watching, he then sent for her to come to him. And David toppled down the stairs of temptation. He saw, he wanted, and then he took. And that's so often how sin happens in our lives, isn't it? Whatever the sin, whatever the temptation, starts with a thought, it leads to an action, and then it leads to disaster. Our hearts often move from that 
wanting something to then taking it, and that's where the sin takes place. And most commentators of, of the Bible agree that actually both of these people were, were in the wrong. David and Bathsheba, it, it seems to me like Bathsheba knew what she was doing, taking a bath while her husband was away on a roof that she knew was overlooked by King David. And so David sends for her, and David sleeps with her. There were several problems. Apart from the fact that they weren't married to each other, which is the kind of obvious headline problem, David was already married himself, and so was Bathsheba to a guy called Uriah. Well, after some time, Bathsheba discovered that the sin that she'd taken part in had brought consequences, and that's another lesson for us, isn't it? Sin nearly always has consequences. We, we, we don't live in a consequence-free world. When we sin, there are consequences. And Bathsheba discovers she's pregnant. And so she sends word to David, the king. And this is when David then descends further down into sin and depravity. He tries to cover up his own sin and tries to cover up what he's done. And he sends for Bathsheba's husband, a man called Uriah. And he was away doing what David should have been doing, which was fighting in the war. And he has him brought back from the war. And the hope is, in David's mind, is if he can get Uriah back for a few nights with his wife Bathsheba, that when the baby is born eight, nine months down the road, everybody will just think it's Uriah's uh, baby, and so will Uriah. And so David's guilt will never be discovered, and everything will be fine, and David will get away with it. But the problem for David was that Uriah had more ethics and morals and integrity than David did, so he refused to go and spend this time with his wife. He said, I can't do that. Not while the men are away fighting. It would be wrong. It would just be wrong for me to go and, and do that. Wouldn't be fair on them. And so David, in his desperation, is forced to send Uriah back into the war. And he gives orders that as, as Uriah is leading a charge against the enemy, that everybody else should fall back and Uriah will be killed and David's problems are solved. And that's exactly what happens. Uriah gets exposed in the battle deliberately, and Uriah is killed, effectively murdered by David. And then David sends for Bathsheba, and Bathsheba becomes another of David's wives. Now, sometime in between David committing adultery and murder, and then the baby being born, sometime in that period, David is then confronted by a guy called Nathan, who was... Um, the prophet, one of God's prophets that God would speak to the nation through. And he challenged David. He challenged David with his sin and with his guilt and what he'd done. And it's at this point that David, to his credit, does turn back to God. David had made a spectacular mess of things. It'd be difficult to make a bigger mess of things. But David, to his credit, does at that point confess what he's done. He accepts what he's done and he turns back to God. And what he does when he turns back to God is then recorded for us in Psalm 51. The prayer, the song that David writes to kind of sum up his situation is Psalm 51. But before we read Psalm 51 or before Naomi comes and reads it for me, my glasses broke this week and I didn't want to look like Jack Duckworth with a big bit of tape around my glasses. And so until Specsavers get their act together and get me some new ones, uh, and Naomi's going to read my uh, Bible reading because I can't read it without my glasses. But anyway, before we read Psalm 51, I want to make a few observations and points. Sexual sin is not the only sin. And we shouldn't concentrate on sexual sin whilst ignoring other sins. Greed, pride, idolatry, theft, hatred, deceit, gossip, maliciousness, and so on. All sorts of sins in the Bible. But, and it's a big but, 
sexual sin is very serious. Sexual sin really is very serious, and it's a particular sin that has devastating consequences for the person and for those who are indulging in it and for those who get caught in the mess that it causes. And I just want to appeal to all of us, male, female, married, single, whatever situation you find yourself in this morning, if we are followers of Jesus, it's so important that we strive for sexual purity. It's so important that we strive for sexual purity. Paul says this in the New Testament in Ephesians 5.3, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality, not even a hint, not even the appearance of it. We must be really, really careful how we interact and how we relate with members of the opposite sex. If we think we're immune from sexual temptation, then we need to think again. Paul says this, speaking about sexual sin primarily, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, he says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. Pride comes before a fall, doesn't it? And no matter how strong we may think we are, we are only ever a step away from falling in any sin, and sexual sin is no different. And one of the lessons we can learn from David, I think, is this, that we shouldn't put ourselves in situations where we'll be tempted unnecessarily. Sometimes we can't help finding ourselves in situations, and we have to then take control of our thoughts, surrender them to Christ, and do what David should have done, which was then turn around and walk away. But we shouldn't put ourselves voluntarily in situations where we're going to be tempted. We shouldn't do the equivalent of going out walking on a roof at night, knowing what will be there for us. And we need to really seriously think about how we interact with the opposite sex. The kind of things that we say as we're you know, bantering with each other and interacting, the way that we look at the opposite sex, the, the kind of physical contact that we have with each other. We need to be really careful and really think that through. Whenever we're interacting with a member of the opposite sex, it's a really good thing as it is in any situation, isn't it? But, but, but to stop and, and in our minds just ask ourselves this, this question, what would Jesus want me to do now? What is the, what is the, the, the Christ-honoring thing to do now in this situation I find myself in? So we're going to read Psalm 51. Naomi's going to come up um, and read this for us now. It's, it's a psalm, or a, a psalm is a song. It's a psalm, a song that David wrote after he confessed what he'd done to God. We're, as Joel says uh, uh, earlier, we're starting a new series now. Uh, in the Psalms, and we're going to be working our way through to the end of August, uh, working our way through some of the Psalms, and we're picking up at Psalm 51 today, so Naomi's going to read for us now. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, I ha have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crossed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O Lord, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors, transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are, my, who are God my saviour. 
and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Thank you, Debbie. So let, let's just remind ourselves of the depths to which David has sunk. He's committed adultery in his heart, and then he commits physical adultery. Not satisfied with lust and adultery, he lies, he cheats, and eventually he murders a man. And all of this by a man of whom the Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart. In fact, that's what God himself says, that he, David was a man after his own heart. This man of God, so-called, has damaged loads of lives. The fallout was immense, and the consequences would go on for a long time. And they would go on, in fact, to, uh, to haunt David for the rest of his life. Actions have consequences. But all wasn't lost. Through the intervention of this prophet Nathan that God sends, and his grace and his mercy to try and turn David back away from his sin, David is brought back to his senses. He's given the kind of equivalent of a spiritual slap around the face. And David's response to Nathan's rebuke is really interesting. It's recorded for us in 2 Samuel 12, 13, which is a kind of parallel, or it's the narrative that goes alongside this psalm. And this is what David says uh, at the end of Nathan's confrontation with him, or Nathan confronting him. This is what he says. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David had cheated on his own wife. He committed adultery with another man's wife, and he killed her husband. But as we saw there in Psalm 51, he says, I'm aware of my the guilt of bloodshed. And when he comes to his senses, he acknowledges that whilst he sinned against other people, Bathsheba, Uriah, his wife, and, and so on, the sins he's committed were first and foremost sins that he's committed against God. And so he comes to God and he realizes that the relationship that he had and has with God has been damaged, it's been polluted. And it's been stained. And David realizes that his number one priority is to put that right first and foremost. And so he comes to God and he approaches God and he prays. And he hatches this prayer in this psalm for us. And as David prays, he shows that he understands the true nature of sin. Because whatever else sin may be and whatever else sin may do, it, sin is primarily human beings rebelling against God. Sin is primarily between me and God. Look at verse 4. David prays to God and says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's not that David doesn't recognize he sinned against others and he knows he's, he's wronged and he's hurt other people. But first and foremost, he recognizes that he has sinned against God. His sinful actions, the adultery, the murder, the lying, they were actually symptoms of a deeper problem deeper reality, his, his sinful reactions were the outcome of his deciding to turn his back on God and live life his way. And it wasn't that David was minimizing the, uh, his sins against others. What he was doing was that he was actually demonstrating that he was seeing his actions in the light that God sees them in, which is that when we sin, we first and foremost sin against God. And, and we need to learn from this, don't we, as those who are seeking to follow Jesus, because when we sin, we often sin, sometimes our sins are private and no one else knows about them, but often we sin against other people. And we need to sort those relationships out when we do sin that way. But we need to realize that our sin primarily is a vertical issue. It is a horizontal issue. It does affect you. It does affect me. But primarily when I sin, I sin against God. 
So when we sin, write this down, we are first and foremost sinning against God himself. It's, it's, it's another one of Satan's deceptions, but just kind of minimizing our sins. When actually, even if nobody else is involved, I've still sinned. If I sinned in my heart, I've sinned against God. And we really need to grasp that and, and kind of recognize that, the, the reality of sin. It, it's so important that we view sin not just as something that affects ourselves or affects other people, but it is first and foremost rebellion against God. That's what sin is, whatever the nature of the sin. So David begins his prayer with a request. He cries out for mercy. Have mercy, O, o God, according to your unfailing love. And, but underlying that request is a theme which is then running throughout the rest of the psalm. It's about confession, and it's about David taking responsibility for his actions. David is, is in confession, and he's holding his hands up, and he takes responsibility. David had been caught out. He'd been rumbled. But he didn't try and excuse himself. He didn't try and shift the blame. He didn't try to deny the facts. That's what we often do, isn't it? You know, we shift the blame. We deny what we've done. So often when we sin and when we're challenged by other people, we find all sorts of reasons and all sorts of excuses for what we've done. We blame our upbringing or we, uh, you know, we say, well, I've been through a tough time recently. You don't know how difficult it's been for me. My, my wife doesn't understand me. Or you know, I've got mental health issues. Or, or my friends were making me do it. Or it's not fair. You know, I, and, and we come up with all kinds of inventive excuses and shift the blame away from our own actions. Is that when we sin, I need to take responsibility. We need to take responsibility. And you know, we can find ourselves doing the same thing with, even with God and and. and shifting the blame or trying to shift the blame onto God. Well, you know, God, if you hadn't put me in that situation, I wouldn't have done that, that kind of thing. And it's just like Adam. When, when we do that, we're following in the footsteps of Adam. Way back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam first sinned, he did exactly the same thing. What did he say when God challenged him after he'd sinned? He says, the woman you put here, it's your fault, God, you put that woman here, and she gave me the fruit. Adam just checks out. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's your fault, God, and it's her fault. Adam blames his wife, and he even has the temerity to, to blame God for giving him his wife. But David didn't do that. He stands up to his credit, and he takes the blame, and he confesses freely to God that he sinned. He doesn't blame Bathsheba for being seductive or maybe possibly trying to tempt him. She might have been. We don't know. He doesn't blame his builder for building him a flat roof. Look at what he says in verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. David's going to have to live with this for the rest of his life. God isn't going to wave a magic wand and remove the situation. He's got to live with it. His sin is always before him. And, you know, we need to follow David's example in this. We need to take responsibility for our sin. Write that on your outline. When we sin, we need to, we need to, we need to man up. We need to confess our sin. We need to take responsibility for it. It takes, a, it takes a, a strong person to do that. The easy thing is to sweep it under the carpet and blame others. We can't shift the blame onto other people. We need to take responsibility for our sin. David actually goes a step further, and he admits his utter hopelessness before God. Look at verse 5. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He recognizes what theologians call the depravity of man, that we are sinners from the moment that we're conceived. You know, people aren't born good and slowly become bad. We are all born in sin. We inherit Adam's sin because we're all descended from Adam. We're all conceived and born thoroughly rotten through and through. We're hopeless cases, and the only hope that we have is Jesus. The only hope we have is God's mercy. 
And that's how David starts to pray to God in this great prayer of, uh, and song of confession and repentance. In verse 1 he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfaithful love, your unfailing love. He recognizes, look, I've got no right to this. I've got no right in myself to claim forgiveness. He simply throws himself on God's mercy because he knows who God is and God's character. And so he comes based on the knowledge of who God is and God's character, that God is a God of love and mercy and unfailing love. He knows he, that he's polluted his relationship with God. He knows he's rebelled against God and he's made an absolute mess of things. And so he comes humbly before God, confessing his sin, and he confesses his unworthiness and his deep, deep need, seeking God's healing touch. And he simply asks that God would ask because God is a merciful God that God would cleanse him, that God would wash him. Longs to be free from the, that, that, that weight of guilt and the stain of, of what he's done. And that kind of sense that he was drowning in guilt, and I guess we could all identify with that at some times, can't we? That sense of when we've sinned, of just, and, and, and sometimes sin can be so overwhelming. David knows that, he's, that the God whom he's sinned against has the answer. So he asks, look at verse 1 again, according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He asked God to, to clean his life. He asked God to remove his sin. He asked God to cleanse him and to wash him. It, kind of David sort of using this image of an, like an open wound that is red and inflamed and is full of you know, junk. And, and, and it, he comes to, know, to, to God, the greatest of physicians, the master doctor, and says, will you come and clean this wound that I've got? Would you come and give me release and, and, and forgiveness for this absolute mess I've made of things? It says in verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than the snow. He longs for that forgiveness, that sense of rightness before God, that sense of being washed and, and clean. And he knows that only God can do that. And so he comes to God and he prays to God as a broken man, as a humble man. I wonder what state your relationship with God is in today. Maybe you've rebelled against God recently. Maybe in something really spectacular. Maybe just in what we would perhaps humanly think of as a very small thing, a very irrelevant thing. Maybe you've made a complete mess of things recently. Maybe no one else knows that. Maybe only you and God know that. Maybe like David, it's with sexual sin. Maybe it's dishonesty. Maybe it's maliciousness. Maybe it's things you've said or done. Maybe it's addictions that deny God's lordship in your life. Maybe you're living as a fraud. It's so easy to do, isn't it? Living one life here on a Sunday, looking the part, and then the rest of the week living a very different life. Maybe you find yourself this morning as somebody like David, maybe not in what David did, but like David as somebody who has sinned, somebody who's rebelled against God. And although maybe it's in the past, you've never really confessed that to God. And maybe you're still weighted down by that sense of guilt and failure. You've lost the joy of your salvation as David had. Look at what he said to God in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. David knew that he'd lost something. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Now sometimes when we sin and we let God down, we, we try to work.
hope God's favor, don't we? Or we think if we work hard, if we do some stuff, some good stuff, that maybe God will like us a bit more again. If I just have seven really good quiet times this week, maybe I'll, I'll kind of feel like I'm back where I should be and God might like me again. Anybody else do that? Is it just me? It's foolish, isn't it? We think that if I do certain good things, if I, if I just manage to go a whole week and pray every day, God might like me a bit more. But look at what David says in verse 16. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You, don't, you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. God doesn't want our human efforts. For David, that would have meant taking sacrifices to the temple and so on, and maybe David did that as well. We don't know. But David's point is, look, that's not what God really wants. God really wants our heart. He wants our hearts right before him. He wants humility. He wants us to come and acknowledge that we need him. Paul teaches us this in Ephesians 2, verse 8. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. When we mess up, big or small, whatever it is, we won't regain God's favor. We, we never lose God's favor, actually. But we won't regain God's favor by doing things. We won't remove our sins. We won't remove our guilt by by doing good things, by sharing the gospel or by reading a bit of the Bible or praying for a week, whatever it is, all we can do is to come to God in humble faith. Because as David knew, and as Paul teaches in Ephesians, God forgives us because of his grace, not because we can earn it, not because there's anything we can do. Write that on your outline. God forgives me because of his grace. Grace simply means unmerited favor. God Grace is God treating you, treating me in a way that I don't deserve to be treated. That is what grace means, what God's grace means. It's God treating us in a way we don't deserve. And David experienced God's grace. He experienced the forgiveness that only God can bring and the cleansing and the removal of sin and the, the, the guilt that goes with that. David experienced that and the transformation that God brings when we experience his forgiveness because he came simply with a broken and a remorseful heart, and he threw himself on God's grace and God's mercy. Now, when we sin, if we've if we've trusted in Jesus, then we won't we don't and we won't cease to be Christians. We don't lose our relationship with God or lose our eternal life. The eternal forgiveness of sin that we receive when we first give our lives to Jesus can never be taken back, and God won't take that back from us when we first trust in Jesus and give our lives to him, then we're forgiven, past, present, and future. We are forgiven ones. That's our new identity. That's our new status. Nothing can change the fact that once we're saved, we're always saved. If we are truly and genuinely saved, tr truly and genuinely trusting in Jesus and belong to him, then we will always belong to him. However, what we can do is damage the quality of that relationship. We can damage the quality of that relationship that we have with him. My dad, um, who was 78 on, on Friday, actually, he will always be my dad. Nothing can change that, but the quality of our relationship can change based on my behavior towards him. I could behave badly, and that would obviously affect the quality of the, the way we relate to one another. And it may be that you're, you find yourself in that situation today, not with your human father, although you may do, but find yourself this morning as a person who has an, an eternal and an unchanging relationship with your father God, yet you've damaged that relationship. You've made a mess of that relationship. 
you know you're not relating to him like you want to. You know that there's this kind of distance, there's awkwardness, there's you're not praying, you're not enjoying the joy of your salvation, of God's salvation. You know that you've damaged your relationship with God, you've rebelled against him, you've sinned against God, and you've lost that sense of close walk with him. In fact, you don't want to be with God. I want to challenge you and encourage you this morning to put that right. To do as David did and come confessing your sin, just casting yourself upon God's grace and God's compassion. David's relationship with God was restored despite the seriousness of his sin. It's pretty difficult to make a bigger mess in life than commit adultery and then murder the guy you commit adultery against. It's pretty big, isn't it? And yet, David was still restored by God, was still forgiven because David came in repentance and faith. And I want to simply tell you this this morning, that no sin that you have committed or will commit is too big for Jesus to deal with. No sin you have committed or will will commit is too big for Jesus to deal with. In fact, he's already dealt with it. He dealt with it at the cross. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All your sins were future when Christ died. He dealt with them at the cross. They're dealt with. Don't let the devil tell you that you've sinned one too many times. You've done that thing again. That's it. It's too late. You've you've gone too far this time. That's what Satan says to us, the accuser. He accuses us. He accuses us day and night before God. He says, you made a mess this time. God has done with you. You you can't be a Christian and live like that. That's that you've made it. You've, you've, you've blown it. You've made too much a mess of it. God's grace is inexhaustible. You can never use it up. Romans 5.20 says this, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you have genuinely trusted in Jesus, then no matter how badly you might let him down, and this isn't an excuse to go letting God down, that's not what Paul says. In fact, just in the very next verse, he says, shall we sin then so we get more grace? No, by no means. We died to sin. We shouldn't live in it any longer. But if we do make a mess of things, God's grace will just keep on defeating and swallowing up our sin. Let's listen to this from Matt. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Aren't you glad the verse doesn't read, for God so loved the rich, or for God so loved the famous, or for God so loved the Europeans, or the Africans, or the sober or successful, the young or the old? No. When we read John 3:16, we simply and happily read, for God so loved the world. How wide is God's love? wide enough for the whole world. Are you included in the world? Then you are included in God's love. Oh, but surely there's a limit. Surely there has to be an end to his love. You'd think so, wouldn't you? But David the adulterer never found it. Paul the murderer never found it. Peter the liar never found it. When it came to life, they did hit bottom. But when it came to God's love, They never did. When asked to describe the width of his love, Jesus stretched one hand to the right and the other to the left and had them nailed in that position so you would know he died loving you. The 
David does say in verse 11, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. So doesn't that contradict what we've just read uh, in Romans and Ephesians? Can God or will God take his Holy Spirit from us uh, when we let him down, when we sin against him? Well, it's important to understand that David was writing this in the Old Testament period before the Holy Spirit had been given at Pentecost where, uh, after Jesus had died and rose again and ascended back to heaven. In the Old Testament period, the Holy Spirit came upon those who trusted in God. And he came upon them for periods of time. And, and God sometimes took his spirit from people who rebelled against him. He did that with Saul, the man that was king of Israel before David. But after the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost by Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live within those who trust in him permanently. Not upon, but within. And it's a permanent thing. So if you've trusted in Jesus this morning, then God will never leave you. He will never forsake you because his spirit lives within you and is now united for eternity with your spirit. But what we can do is grieve the spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Paul says this, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who lives within us, but he doesn't leave us. Why? Because the Holy Spirit acts as a seal of ownership, guaranteeing our eternal future. The one that we are sealed with for the day of redemption. How do we stop grieving the Holy Spirit then? If, we're, if that's what we're doing, well, we turn away from sin. It's called repentance. We say we're sorry to God. We confess our sins like David did. And once again, we fix our eyes on Jesus and we live for him. Psalm 51 is a, a song of and a prayer of confession and repentance for those who've sinned, for those who've lost the joy of their salvation, they've grieved the Holy Spirit who is living within them. And this morning, if you have turned your back on God and you've made a mess of things, big, small, whatever, then you need to hear this morning that God stands with his arms outstretched waiting for you to return to him. Just as a father flings his arms open wide to receive his child, so God stands with his arms open wide this morning waiting for you to return to him. Stands with arms open wide, reminding us that the arms of Jesus were outstretched there at Calvary. Maybe this morning that you've never actually come to Jesus and come to God for the forgiveness that he offers and has made possible through what Jesus did at the cross. You might not have murdered anyone like David and you might not be an adulterer, or maybe you are, maybe you have. Regardless of how good, how bad your life is, you need to know that your sin needs to be dealt with. You need forgiveness, and it's only Jesus that can save you and give you eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, for your mercy, for your grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your arms were stretched wide there on the cross not just receiving physical nails, but also in some way symbolizing the wideness of your love. Thank you that your love cannot and your grace cannot be exhausted once we've put our faith and trust in you. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that your grace means that no sin we can commit is too great to be forgiven. Thank you that we are already forgiven. We are forgiven ones. Lord, I pray this morning for anybody who has wandered from you, that this morning would be a moment of returning to you. For anybody who's yet to actually come to you and, and give their life to you, 
and put their trust in you. I pray that this morning, Lord, they would do that right now. But we thank you that we are forgiven. Thank you for your grace, your mercy. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have made all this possible through what you did at the cross. We worship you this morning. Amen.